Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and we are starting a new five-week series tonight. The series is going to be on worldviews, or how one sees the world. I guess that's sort of in the title, is it not? Um, but uh, we'll be diving into more philosophical questions, questions of origin, questions of meaning, questions of purpose, and questions of what happens uh, when we die. We're going to be looking at five very different worldviews. The worldview tonight of Christianity, or technically Christian theism. We'll also be doing an introduction to worldviews tonight as well. The next four weeks we'll look at naturalism, nihilism, and then we'll also look at postmodernism and also Islamic theism. Again, five very different worldviews, and worldviews that people that we work with, that we eat next to at restaurants, and that we are friends with, uh, all hold to in varying degrees. Tonight will be Dr. David Flatt, who will be teaching on, again, an introduction and also on Christian theism. I've heard this lesson before, and it's extremely good. It's also very deep. And so if you're into philosophy or some of these deeper, bigger questions, I do think you'll really enjoy it. So let's go to David right now with an introduction to worldviews and the worldview of Christian theism. All right, guys. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. I know it's test week, and there's some meetings up at school, and there's certainly a bunch of could be and uh, <clears throat> it just means a lot to me that you guys would be here so um, I hope this is a special group to you guys it's a special group to us we look forward to it each week and um, I appreciate the relationships that are building here so we're starting a new unit uh, this week it's gonna be on worldviews and I think like a lot of the most important conversation to have um, this is not not the kind of conversation that you can get in like 140 characters or Fox News Chiron is going to like explain this concept. You can't this in like a four minute segment on cable news. This is, you know, some kind of thoughtful, deeper level stuff. But I think most of the things really worth knowing and worth living out are not shallow and surface. And so there may be some some points in here that this is, you know, kind of too much, whatever. Just kind of let's stick together. And because I think there's something worth worth knowing here. So, uh, with that being said, why don't we go ahead and jump in and we'll see um, where this goes. Okay, so has anyone ever heard the term worldview before? Some have, some haven't. I think, I mean, it's definitely a term that's used some in Christian circles, but it's, it's really um, more of kind of like a cultural term. So the idea is a worldview is a set of fundamental beliefs, that's your blank, through which we view the world. So this, this idea was first was developed by Immanuel Kant in 1768. So it's kind of an older uh, idea, but the point is, how do you see the surrounding world? And that, as we'll get into, there's different ways to make sense of reality. And so as it relates to kind of what we're trying to do here on Monday nights, is obviously there's a Christian perspective on the world, but there's other perspectives too. So how do those um, compete and complement each other? And I think where tension is and where the, they come at each other, there's some kind of potential fruitful discussions. So a worldview is, uh, like we said, the set of fundamental beliefs through which we view the world. Everyone has a worldview. Even the denial of a worldview is, in fact, a worldview. So we'll talk about this in three weeks. But a potential position to say, well, like, if you're trying to press someone, a worldview is fundamental beliefs about how you see the world. How do you answer what's right and wrong, what's good and evil, what's real and fake, what really matters, what's important, what's about Someone say, well, I don't have a worldview. I just live. I'm just doing day to day. I'd say even that is a worldview. It's a worldview called nihilism. It's a worldview to say that nothing really matters. You just 
kind of endure and get through the day. So the refusal to answer these questions does not mean you've escaped the concept. In, in fact, refusing to answer the important question of life is, in fact, an answer to the questions of life. Um, and then the, in, the last thing I want to say is that individual's worldview is is built on a mountain of unconscious assumptions. So let me just make a few points with this slide here. I think this is helpful. So this picture here, of course, is a picture of um, some glasses. So if you think about that, that's really what a worldview is. That, um, <clears throat> when we've talked about this before, I made the joke, I see college football through like orange-colored glasses, right? I see the whole landscape. This, these are the reasons we're going to beat Florida this year. Of course we're going to beat South Carolina. They're awful. Um, you know, maybe we have a shot versus Alabama if they turn it over, and so, and then of course, like none of that really matches reality. Usually, every once in a while, you're just kind of accidentally right, but um, that's not a good truth-seeking tool in college football. Is to assume Tennessee is going to be good. It does, it, things just don't work out that way, and that's the way we all see the world. We there are lenses you filter the world through, and you filter reality through. Our brains, our ability to to conceive and perceive reality is just not capable of retaking in all of the information we get every day all anew. You begin each day with certain assumptions about how things work. Almost all of us agree on most of these assumptions because they're uh, based on living in 21st century America. So things like nobody was worried when they drove here tonight that uh, a dinosaur was going to eat your car, right? That was just that you didn't have to. No one thought through what am I going to do if a pterodactyl lands on my car. It's, just, it's not even part of your worldview, so it's not a conception of the reality that you have to process in or out. Those are the glasses you put on. So this can be a really helpful tool, right? Because it allows our brains to get through the day instead of every second of the day trying to refigure out is it safe? Is it not safe? Um, what's going to happen if I turn the light switch on or off? How should I set the thermostat? at all the details and the uh, about the specifics and specialties about how you perform your job or you know go to school or whatever a lot of that is kind of all built into the system so to speak and that's your worldview that's how you see and conceive of the world okay so I, as we talk about these worldview glasses there's five basic questions that any a meaningful worldview is going to answer and we're going to spend the next five weeks unpacking how different worldviews answer these five questions and so here they are the first is the question of origin so any worldview just like any good superhero movie is going to have to deal with the question of origin where did batman come from so it, obviously a way more important question is where did humanity come from where why are, we're here so that's where emmanuel can't uh, Kant started, I think, therefore I am, right? So I'm here, I exist, and then you work backward from that. I think that's a, a safe assumption. So I'm here, how did I get here? Well, I had parents and grandparents. Well, what about, you know, you trace that thing all, all the way back, and so you've got questions of origin in any worldview framework. So whether it be atheism, or Islam, or Hinduism, or Christianity, or postmodernism, there's going to be answers to how we got here, where do we come from. The second is to be questions of meaning. So what is the purpose of your life? How do you, where do you derive meaning and the fact that your life matters? Where does that come from? Third is going to be identity. So this, I think, would be the question, maybe above all others, that our culture is obsessed with. Identity. Who am I? What group am I a part of that gives me value? So I think when you think about um, modern like sexual politics or even racial politics or class politics, all of this is trying to fit 
um, yourself or other people into certain groups and then to assign different groups value or unvalue based on what group they are or aren't in. It's because our modern um, construction of, of Western thought in America is in fact a worldview and it has a value of identity and in fact a, a really high value of the, the role and importance of identity. And we'll talk about what that means for a Christian worldview in a few minutes. The fourth question is morality. What is right and what is wrong? So some of these questions, maybe, maybe you don't have to think about what is origin every day. You can kind of ignore that. You can't ignore the question of morality and live a, a purposeful Tuesday. You know, tomorrow you're going to have to answer the question, is it right or wrong to steal, to cheat, how I drive, how I treat people, can I get ahead, can I show up to work late, can I leave early? All those questions about what are right or wrong, you're going to be forced uh, to deal with those, and so any worldview is going to answer those. And then finally, destiny. Um, no conception of reality is going to be complete without some context of what happens when we die. And so you got 7 billion people on the planet, and there's different answers to kind of exactly how that works. But even the answer, nothing happens when I die, that is a, an answer to a worldview question. And uh, it's worth considering how does your worldview answer that question. So what I'd say is there's a lot of worldviews in 2018 America that have contradictory answers to these questions. And so obviously that's one of the tests of is this is your worldview a meaningful one, a reasonable one, a helpful one to hold. If your answer to where you came from is that we're the product of time and chance with no direction and no meaning, and so our morality is determined individually and we can do whatever we want. If the, those are coherent, but then if your answer to meaning is life is very meaningful and my choices matter because, well, because of what? Right? So that's, that's going to be contradictory to derive great meaning from your life, but then state that your origin and morality are totally meaningless. So um, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but if you're going to have a meaningful worldview, the answers to these five questions are going to need to correspond. Okay, so how often do you think about these questions? Let's have a little discussion time. Are you the kind of person who has never, it's never occurred to you to think about any of these before? You think about them a lot, you think about them a little. What about your friends? Do you think they are thinking about them? Um, and is that is that good or bad when you think about them more or less? Personally, I think about meaning a lot. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about it I guess a couple weeks ago about, um, you know, starting with why and, you know, having purpose behind things. And I, that's something, even before that, I've been tried, trying to be intentional and uh, having a purpose behind what you do uh, gives life more meaning. Yeah. That's one I think about a lot. And I, I also think, probably as a culture, we also think about morality a lot, especially if you get on... Uh, any social media, there's yeah. always two sides to the issue, and uh, everyone's kind of thinking about what side is right, what side is wrong these days. Mm-hmm. I think I go through seasons of life where I think about more than others. Like over the last year of college, I thought about these questions like every single day. But like, but lately it's been kind of nothing. So I think it just kind of comes and goes depending on like where you're at. One of the things that's helpful about Monday nights is that, at least for me, in medical school, that's a really difficult time to think about anything that really matters beyond the next test. 
And so I certainly am not suggesting you need to go spend all your time thinking about this, but maybe for 45 minutes, an hour a week, we can um, have some conversations that, that matter beyond our, our studies. But I'm right there with you. When I was in med school, it's hard to think about what's the meaning of my life. I'm just like, am I going to pass this test Friday? <laughs> what are the nerves in the brachial plexus? Like for me, uh, the identity, but not so much that in itself, but like how that changes over time. Like as I attach my identity to one thing, mm-hmm. it's like for years or seasons, and as that kind of changes and leaves, that can be hard to not kind of like be stuck to that for too long and be ready to like move on to the kind of the next thing. That oh, that's good. Yeah. Not like as in like our, our identity in Christ, but maybe like my identity as a man, right? Like in the things I do, how does that kind of change with time? That's good, man. I think that I used to think about them a lot, like how they apply to me, these questions, but now it's kind of transitioned. Um, just like thinking as I'm speaking with my, my classmates or my patient's parents or my patients themselves, I'm kind of like, drawn to thinking like what do they think about these things and then that kind of helps to like channel my discussion with mm-hmm. them a little bit better um i guess just like as i'm forming like deeper relationships with people it kind of goes to like oh what do they think like as i felt more confident in like what i think mm-hmm. kind of transition to them mm, that's good <coughs> okay well, let's kind of press on here um this is definitely related, but it's a little bit of a detour. So probably the most important book that's been written on this topic for about 1,500 years was written by this old guy named Aristotle. And until probably about, I don't know, 1750 or 1800, this was the text on what's called epistemology or like theory of knowledge, how we know what we know. So Aristotle wrote the book. It's called On Rhetoric. This was the definitive text on epistemology. And then you run into modernism and the enlightenment and some you know we're not we're not doing that tonight but there's just some different conversations that kind of came around this but all that to say this is a real has been a really important text in the development of our culture and i think has some interesting insights here's an insight that i think is really helpful so how do we form our beliefs aristotle says we form on three factors and i, I just want to say on the front end this is healthy when i when we'll kind of come full circle but maybe as i'm introducing them it seems it may seem kind of unhealthy but the first, why do you believe what you believe? Let's, let's just let's take a non-kind of religious idea. So why do you believe that the earth is round? Okay? And so this belief, just like any belief, is going to be based on these three factors. The first is called logos. So this is the intellectual dimension of belief. So I think your blank there is intellectual. The intellectual dimension of belief. This is the part of an answer that corresponds to logic, evidence, and to the other things that we know about the world. So you believe the earth is round in part because you may have taken a class in astronomy or geology and you've talked about um, how the the earth is tilted and you've talked that you we've learned about time zones and how the sun sets earlier on one part of the earth than the other and so you you kind of put some of these data points together and it says well that makes the most sense that the earth is round but that's not the only reason you believe the earth is round you also believe the earth is round because of something called pathos so this is the personal or emotional d- dimension of a belief so this means is the answer is it um, is it helpful or personal does it um, correspond to the deep needs you have about the world so maybe the earth being round is not 
the best example of something like this. But you say the earth being round, does that make sense of my reality? Is it personally fulfilling? And I think probably yes. You think about where well, I'm, I'm walking on the globe and there's people on the other side of the globe and it just on your day tomorrow, it makes sense of the world that the world is round. But this is probably not the strongest reason you believe the earth is round. Maybe um, a, a better example of this might be like your um, political beliefs. So I think Christians can have different political beliefs, but probably some of the political beliefs that you have kind of correspond to be personally fulfilling to you. So whether you think that individuals, um, it's important to take individual responsibility for your actions and behaviors, or you have a, a, a conscience that's really sensitive to people who um, are in a tough spot and need, and need help, and, and how you would kind of answer those questions, and of course there's a lot of nuance there, so I'm not, not wanting to uh, answer political questions tonight, but you can see how what you end up deciding is true about politics is going to be affected by which one of these ways of seeing the world is going to be personally fulfilling to you. And then the third dimension he talks about is what's called ethos. So this is the social dimension of belief. So we find truth in a community of fair-minded and intellectually honest people who care about us. And so I think this is a really good example of why do you think the earth is round. The truth is, for most of us in this room, you think the earth is round because you live in an ethos that recognizes the earth is round, right? You've never met a smart, intelligent, fair-minded person who didn't think the earth was round. So I know I've never considered that the earth was flat or the arguments for the earth being round. Really, I just assumed that it was because that made the most sense of the ethos that I live within. And so the truth is, whether it be Christianity or atheism or postmodernism or polytheism or um, nihilism or naturalism or Islam, which we'll talk about later, you're going to factor into all these three things. And I think something's interesting. If someone asked me, why am I a Christian? I would try to answer in all three of these dimensions, right? So we talk, as we talked about last year, I think there's really good intellectual, logical arguments for Christianity being true. There's reasons to believe that the universe began to exist and so would need a creator. There's reasons to believe that Jesus probably rose from the dead, historical arguments about what happened on that first Easter Sunday. But that, that wouldn't be the whole story, right? Christianity is also personally fulfilling to me. I find meaning and value and purpose in a life that isn't based on time and chance, but is based on meaning. And not only gives me meaning, but my family and my friends and people who need help. And then also there's a, an ethos around my faith that is really important. So I'm a part of a church community. I'm a part of a Monday night Bible study of people who love each other and are trying to answer tough questions about life and live lives that are truer and better and more beautiful. So all those things kind of contribute to why I'm a Christian. The interesting question, though, if you ask somebody, why are you not a Christian? Why are you an atheist? Almost everyone's going to pretend that there's no pathos or no ethos in their non-belief. And that's just not true. It's just not true. There, we live in a time where there certainly is an ethos that would influence someone's unbelief, and there's also a pathos that's going to influence someone's unbelief. So I think as we're honest about why we believe what we believe, we can sometimes press our friends to say, I'm not sure that your unbelief is only an intellectual challenge here. I think there's a li something else going on. Why don't we talk about where you derive meaning, where you fit in, where you're finding comfort. And uh, I think that can be helpful. So I think all that to say, I think Aristotle is really right. We believe things based on these three principles. And from a Christian perspective, that's good and true. If you think about this, this is a lot of what we're trying to be in this Bible study. We're trying to be a place of logos. When this isn't like everyone go around and tell us what kind of fruit of the Spirit you'd be if you could choose, right? We're trying to like really wrestle and talk intellectually about important questions. 
But it's also a place, place of pathos. We want to be personally fulfilling. And then it's also a place of ethos. We want to be a community that matters. So we're trying to build a place that fits with Aristotle's model. Okay, so all that being said, let's talk about testing a worldview. So everyone answers the worldview questions, but an unexamined life can often lead us to answer them in implausible, self-contradictory, and unfulfilling ways. Right. So if you don't examine your life, you're going to be someone like we talked about earlier who's got contradictory answers to these questions. The, t- the test of an answer to a worldview question should be threefold. So you say, David, um, where, how did the universe begin? How, what is the, how do you answer the origin question? If a good answer or an appropriate answer to that question is going to be an answer that's true, so does your answer conform with what we know about reality? So if I say, what is 2 plus 2, a true answer would be 4. A false answer would be 5. You guys follow me? So that a true answer is going to be an answer that corresponds with reality. Second is going to be a good answer. So what is a good answer? A good answer is, does the answer satisfy the question? So if I said, what is 2 plus 2, and you said purple... That's not really a false answer. It's just a bad answer. It's not an answer to the question. So if I said, what is 2 plus 2, and you said 5, that's an incorrect answer. But at least on this model, it's not really a bad answer. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's a good answer. It's answering the question. It just fails the test of truth. It doesn't fail the test of goodness. right? So a good, a good answer to a question is going to be an answer that corresponds to the question that was asked. Okay, and then finally, is it beautiful? So you think, David, that's so like... I thought we were like kind of intellectually rigorous. We're trying to be doctors here. But I think this matters. I think true answers to life are going to be personally fulfilling. They're going to be personally fulfilling. And um, there's been a lot of smart people that, that recognize this. But answers to life like your life is meaningless. You're the blind product of time and chance. You began from nothing. You are nothing. You will end in nothing. I think answers like that to all a, ho- a whole host of questions tend not to be true. There's a, a beauty and a personal satisfaction in, in truth. And so as we try to discern which of these questions can we find the greatest meaning in, it's going to be answers that are true, that are good, and that are beautiful. And if you're trying to lead a meaningful life, I would say that one of the things you ought to do is you ought to try to find the things in your life that are true, that are good, and that are beautiful, and emphasize those and put meaning in those. I'm running behind, so I have a lot of questions, a lot of time for this, but let me just throw this out there. Maybe we'll talk about it for 30 seconds. But where in your life do you find truth, goodness, and beauty? And so I was thinking about our life, and I think when we have meals together, I see a lot of that. So I see, like, truth. We're having meaningful conversations. We're talking with my my children. I find goodness. There's something there that is like, like, this is how life is supposed to be. We're sharing a meal together and there's beauty there's like time together it's personally satisfying sitting down with my children and they tell us silly joke and we laugh you know there's something about that so I think there's meaning in life in that kind of moment so can anybody think of like other moments in your life where you see like truth good and beauty I'd say anytime being out in nature oh that's a good one I thought about saying like looking up at the stars at night. I think it's probably. The Greenway. Yeah.
think church is a good example. It kind of brings all those things together. Okay, well, I want to hear what you guys think about that, but we can talk afterwards, okay? Because I want to press on. Because we're talking about Christian worldview, and uh, so I want to spend some time talking about that. So here's our, our kind of chart that we're going to spend the next five weeks filling in. So over the next five weeks, we'll explore how Jesus provides a better way to see the truth, goodness, and beauty of life than these other options. But I think, uh, I want to say this on the front end, so we're going to be fair to the other perspectives too. So when we're talking about Islam or nihilism or postmodernism, there's going to be some moments we think, why is he being so like sympathetic to that worldview? But I think it's important to be honest, right? And so there, um, if Christianity is, if there's ultimate meaning in Christianity, then any other worldview that in places where it corresponds with Christianity, there's going to be truth, goodness, and beauty there too, right? So I think ultimate meaning is in is in the God of the Bible and His revelation through history and His personal relationship through His Spirit with us now. But any other worldview that's going to be consistent with that, you're going to find meaning there too. So we'll talk about the origin, meaning, identity, morality, and destiny of all five of these worldviews. That's that's what we're doing in the next five weeks. All right, so all that being said, our first worldview is Christian theism. Well, all we just did was introduction to worldview, kind of what the, the series is about. So here's the five questions. We've talked about origin, meaning, identity, morality, and destiny, what the questions specifically are. So let's walk through each question how a Christian worldview would answer it, and then let's run it through the worldview test. Is it good, or is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? So the question of origin. The question is, where did reality and the self come from? A Christian worldview would say that external reality is the cosmos, that's everything, that God created out of nothing. So the the Latin term that's used here is ex nihilo, and that's an important concept. There There was nothing, and God created everything. God didn't take pre-existing dust together and mix it up in a special formula and out of the um, oven in heaven came a universe. Out of nothing, God created everything. Okay, so is this true? Do we have reason to think this is true? The best evidence from science and philosophy, and we spent two weeks talking about this last year, but the best evidence from science and philosophy demonstrates that the universe, your blank there, began to exist at a point in the distant past. So that origin question, I mean, any high school textbook that talks about the origin of the universe has an answer that's pretty similar to the, the Christian worldview answer. Out of nothing came everything at a point in the distant past. Is this a good answer? So if you're asked, if the question is, where did everything come from? Is the answer, God created everything? Is that a good answer? Well, of course. That's like the definition of a good answer. It's like 2 plus 2 equals a number. That, that, that is an appropriate answer to that question. The answer to in the beginning God created satisfies the question of origin. And then is it beautiful? I'd argue yes. So we live in a beautiful universe that points beyond itself towards something or someone greater. It's a really beautiful idea to think this isn't all an accident. We're created by something are someone so much more powerful than us. So think about the psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 1. This is written, you know, 2,500, 3,000 years ago. Somebody's looking up at the stars at night. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. That's beautiful. All right, so what about meaning? The question of meaning, what is the purpose of my existence? The Christian answer is, the purpose of our existence is to glorify, that's your blank, glorify God, and enjoy, that's your other blank, Him forever. 
You think, Dave, that's a really good sentence. How'd you write that? Well, I didn't write that. That's from the Westminster Catechism. But I think that's, I mean, that's exactly right. Why do I exist? People act like this question, there's like this cultural meme that like the purpose of life is like this unanswerable, really difficult question. It's not a hard question at all. And like you exist to glorify God, to bring glory to His name through your life so that people look at your life and think who the, the person that He lives for and worships must be great because of how he or she is living. And then out of that, out of that glory is to enjoy God. Enjoy Him now and to all eternities. That, I think that's a really good answer to that, that question. So true. Is that true? Our perception of life is that it is not meaningless. So I think I, that would be my kind of test of truth is just to make a kind of a personal question. Does your life have meaning? I think for almost all of us, life does not feel like we are electrons or atoms bumping into other atoms without any purpose. There seems to be some kind of purpose or identity or meaning behind day-to-day life. And so if, if we sense this great purpose, it seems like it would be an, an awkward accident that there was actually no purpose. So I think that if, if we had purpose, we would feel like there was purpose. So at some level, that seems to speak to the truth of the matter. So is this a good answer? Well, if God exists, if God exists, we take that, take that um, as an assumption, the greatest possible good that we could do is to glorify Him, for He is the greatest possible being. So if the greatest possible being actually, in fact, did exist, the greatest possible good we could do would be to glorify that being. And so that's a really good answer to, to what's the meaning of your life. And then finally, is it beautiful? Is this a beautiful idea? The purpose of human existence is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, I think so. We're made to glorify God. Our hearts will never rest until they find the joy of fulfilling this purpose. One of the most famous sentences that's ever been said in Western thought is this St. Augustine sentence. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And I think um, if you think about kind of human experience, I, I mean, I've heard a bunch of people tell the story. I tried to find happiness. I tried to find fulfillment I, in all these different areas. And at the end of life, I found you know there's this God-shaped hole that only He could fill. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard a testimony almost exactly like that. You know, kind of the details may vary. And uh, Augustine's life, um, maybe we ought to talk about that sometime. Like we, do, we could do a series on like great lives, great Christian lives or whatever. He's like this. I remember this like weird religion before he converted and really lived a life of debauchery and so in his uh in kind of his testimony part of his his deal was that he was unsatisfied even though he was rich and popular and had all the women and you know the whole thing but he found ultimate fulfillment in God and I think that's the story of all of us our hearts are restless we're looking for fulfillment in money and drugs and sex and popularity we're restless until we find our rest in you All right, pressing on here. Let's talk about identity. I think this is huge. And I think living in our culture, you can't help but think about the question of who am I and how does my existence as a person give me meaning, right? So I really think on both sides of the aisle in a really toxic way, the whole conversation is this group of people belong to this group. 
these kind of people belong to this group and that means they're not valuable. Or this kind of people belong to this group and that means they're more valuable and more important. And, and that's, that's really what we do is we divide both kind of sides of the aisle, so to speak, divide groups up in different ways and then pit those groups up against each other because of what their identity is. So we almost have like a cult of identity is how we do politics in America, at least for the past two or three years. And I, I think that's, that's really unhelpful. Um, but I don't think that means the identity question is not important. The, and the reason that kind of politics is so powerful is because we're all made in the image of the same God, and we all have the same search and desire to have a meaningful identity, right? And so if we look for identity in kind of political, toxic, cultural, racial places, of course you're going to come up with weird answers. But I think the Bible's got a, a much better answer. So, so for the Christian... We find our identity. Human beings were made in the image of God. I think all of um, Christian social thought begins with this idea. We're made in the image of God. If you want to talk about poverty, if you talk about race, if you want to talk about um, the unborn, if you want to talk about euthanasia, if you want to talk about immigration, all of those kind of concepts begin with the idea that every human on the planet is made in the image of God. So through the fall, we have defaced the Imago Dei. I think that's your blank. Imago Dei, which is just a translation of image of God into Latin, but it makes you sound smart if you say it like that. So we have defaced the Imago Dei, but through the person and work of Jesus, we are offered redeemed identity in Him. Okay, so through the person and work of Jesus, we're offered redeemed identity. So is this true? So biblical anthropology gives an answer to human history that is more satisfactory than the simplistic people are good or people are bad. So a story I like to tell about this, I have a, um, when I was in fellowship, I had an attending. I really, really liked this guy. Um, but we would, we'd read echoes together. So we'd sit in a dark room and you read echoes and you do this for like hours on end, and um, you know what I'm talking about. You sit in a room, drink coffee, read, picture, look at pictures. And so that's kind of part of what you So if you do that, you kind of start making small talk with a guy whose you know, reading cubicle is next to yours. So one of our, my attendings teaching me to read. I'd read two or three studies, and we'd talk about them together, and he'd tell me what was, how terrible my reading was and how I needed to get, you know, get better or whatever. And, but he loves to talk about like religion and politics, which is fine. I mean, I kind of like to talk about those things too a little bit. Um, and so one of the questions... He asked me was, um, or maybe I asked him because he was kind of really pushing a, a way of seeing the world. I was like, man, this is, you know, not correct. And I think I, I recognize his his assumption. He's assuming that people are intrinsically good and that that everyone's good. And so where we see deficits in the world, it's just attributable to outside forces. There's nothing external internally wrong with people. So I, I said, you know. Um, Doctor, I don't want to say his name, but doctor attending, do you do you think people are good or bad? And he said, well, of course, I think people are good. You know, what kind of person do you think I am? Think people are bad? I said, you know, you're a smart man. I mean, a really smart man. You know a lot about history and theology and politics and all this thing. The idea that you could look at human history, even the past hundred years of human history and think about like what happened in Rwanda or the Holocaust or what happened in communist China or goodness grief just like look outside what's going on in our country now like you don't think that there's something in the human heart that's distorted that's a little evil and of course that's true people are not intrinsically good if, if they were 
then human history makes no sense. Because you look all through human history, you've got these awful, just stomach-churning, disastrous things that happen, and you just think, how could that have ever happened? How could, how could humans ever treat other humans that way? But it's also not entirely true either to say, well, humans are evil, right? Because if humans are all evil, well, how do you make sense of some really beautiful lives that have been lived? I'm not saying these people are perfect, but I've got a, you know, a ton of respect for um, any number of people. I think Pope John Paul was an, an incredible human that really did good things for the world. Or uh, I, I think, I mean, these are kind of standard answers, but Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa, I think they were really remarkable people. And um, how do you explain lives so courageous, so sacrificial, if, if we're all evil? I think the Christian answer of, well, we're made in the image of God, but that image has been distorted through sin. I think that makes a lot more sense of history than kind of the simplistic, you know, cable news or talking over a cup of coffee in the, your office break room of, well, everyone's good or everyone's evil. And so I think there's a, a level of truth that kind of corresponds to the Christian answer. Is this a good answer? Well, I think so. This answer demonstrates why all humans are equally intrinsically valuable and explains our tendency towards evil. So I think we kind of get into this thing. We want to be able to say that everyone is equal. But of course it's not true, right? People have all kinds of different talents and abilities. So we're not equal in abilities. We're not equal in possessions. So how are we equal? Well, we're equal in value. So every person on the planet has the same intrinsic ultimate worth, not because of how smart you are or what you can do for me or what you can give me or how you make me feel or how funny you are. You have that value because you're made in the image of God. So if you're a banker from Boston or a a beggar on on the streets of India, you have equal worth because you're made in the image of God. And I think that's that's a good answer to that question. And finally, is this beautiful? I think this is one of the most beautiful things about Christianity. The Christian answer to who am I provides encouragement for the discouraged. So I want you to think about times in your life when you felt like you didn't have what it takes. I know in med school there were times that I felt like that. The, the pressures of med school make you feel like, can I really do this? Well, the image of God provides encouragement for those moments. You've got what it takes. You're valuable because I, because I made you, is what God says in the, in the doctrine of the Imago Dei. There's also humility for the proud. So I think also in med school, I might get a test back. I might um, maybe meet some, go meet an old acquaintance who didn't know I was in med school, and so you kind of slip that in the conversation. You know, there's a tendency to kind of puff yourself up, right? So the Imago Dei, I think, is also an excellent answer to that. You are a depraved distortion of what you were created to be and cannot be redeemed by your own effort or on your own. So there's going to be encouragement for the discouraged, there's humility for the proud, and there's hope for the distraught. So ultimately, the Imago Dei says, the Imago Dei that you were created with can be redeemed in the person of Jesus. So no no matter how distraught you are about whatever, and we can list a whole bunch of things that could put you in that place, it's all redeemable. It's all redeemable because you're made in the image of God. So Genesis 1.27. So this is one of the most important texts, I think, in all of Scripture because it answers so much. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1.27. So underline that one in your Bible if you haven't yet.
All right, morality. So objective morality is grounded in the character of God. That's the Christian answer. If the question is, what is right and what is wrong, the Christian answer is that objective morality is grounded in the character of God. So is this true? Well, the existence of objective moral values corresponds to our perception of the world. This is kind of similar to meaning. I perceive that meaning does exist. I also perceive that there's a moral difference between um, loving a child and torturing a child. And that's not the sort of thing that you're going to be able to talk me out of like, well, David, you just think that because you were born into a Western culture that values children, and if you were born into a different culture, it would be okay to rape and murder children. No, I don't, I don't think that's right. I think there, there is an objective moral difference in loving a child and, and torturing a child. And I think if you don't have something beyond our world that stands above it that created a moral law, I think it's difficult to explain how there is a moral law. So Ravi Zacharias said one time, if you have a moral law, then you have to have a moral law giver. Right? So you don't have a law without a law giver. And so I think that's true. If there's a law on our hearts, then it seems to me there has to be a giver of that law. The, other, the only other way to squeeze out of that is to say that, that our moral perceptions are all a distortion. And there really is no difference in raping and murdering and loving. And if you're willing to go that far, then I think we're having a different conversation. But I think most people recognize there is a difference. There was something intrinsically morally wrong about slavery. In fact, if let's imagine a world if the South had won the Civil War and, and murdered everyone in the country who thought that slavery was evil, and so that the only people left were people who embraced slavery, slavery would still be evil. Right? Slavery wasn't evil because of the majority thought it was evil. Slavery was evil because it's morally wrong to own another human. Right? And so objective mor morality does exist. So is this, is this a good answer? I think so. This answer demonstrates why all humans have equal intrinsic value. Oh, I'm sorry. This answer is a good answer because grounding moral values in the character of God Yes. I'm sorry, Alexa. <laughs> okay, is this a good answer? Yes. Grounding moral values in the character of God demonstrates how the moral realm can exist objectively, non-arbitrarily, and dependently. So these are some of the questions you're going to get into in moral ethics. Are, are, moral, are moral laws objective? Well, if God exists, then it's possible that they are. Are they arbitrary? Well, if God just decrees something because he on a whim because he feels like it, then they are arbitrary. So I don't want to get too far afield, but if you can imagine, if you just had a, a dictatorial God whose character wasn't the determining basis of ethics, well, he could command evil, and it would be good because he commanded it, right? But that's not the picture of Christian morality. Christian morality is based on the character of God. So because God is good, his moral dictates are good. So morality is not dependent on um, what's sometimes called like divine command theory. God commands it so it's good. That's not the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview is God is good. And so what he commands is consistent with his character, and so his commands are good. And so that's why objective morality exists. Okay, finally, is it beautiful? We can perceive morality as truth because we are made in the image of a God who is the standard of goodness. I think it's a beautiful idea. I don't want to live in a world where my moral perceptions are... Um, 
frivolous and, and don't matter. I want to live in a world where moral judgments do matter. And I think it's a beautiful world to live in if you can make all that make sense. So think about Romans 2, verse 15. The work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is why we agree with non-Christians on a great deal of moral questions, because non-Christians were made in the image of God. So they have the Imago Dei. They have the moral law written on their hearts. They perceive that things like theft and rape and murder are immoral because they were made in the image of the same God that believers were made in the image of. Okay, the final worldview question is the question of destiny. So the question is, what was going to happen to me after I die? So, this is a, sorry to kind of break this tonight, but you're going to die. Everybody in the room is going to die. And in fact, once kind of the morbidity and kind of the, the, the depressing sound of that kind of statement wears off, I think it's a really important truth to base your life on. So you're not going to live forever. And so if you're not going to live forever, it's going to change how you live today. It's going to change how you think about how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you do with your kids, what kind of legacy you want to leave, how you want to help others. Because you're not going to live on this planet in a thousand years. But you will exist, in a Christian worldview, a billion years from now. You're going to exist. And so if you're going to exist a billion years from now, but it's not going to be, you're not going to be living off your 401k in a billion years. You're going to be living off something else. So invest in the kinds of things that will matter a billion years from now. So physical death is the gateway to eternity. We will exist, your blank, forever in fulfilling life with God or separated from Him and His goodness. So is this true? I don't know that we can really apply the Logos test to this question. It's difficult to answer the question, what happens after we die? I don't really, you know, say with the origin question, I think there's some, some answers in reality. The, the question of what happens when we die, I think, is tough. If you're interested, uh, there's two scholars, uh, J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas. They wrote a book called After Death, which is kind of interesting. They, they look at all these near-death experiences and see if they can like put them together to make sense of what may happen after we die. It's at least interesting reading. I wouldn't uh, maybe present it as like an argument, but it's a fun read to kind of think about uh, if there may be something there. But I, for this kind of talk, I would say I think it's difficult to answer that question from a truth. But I think the answers from goodness and beauty are really important. So is this a good answer? A human destiny of eternity explains why life matters so much. Your life matters because your life it will not cease at the grave. When you take your last breath, it will not be over. And in fact, the moments and the, the words and the um, time that you share with other people are going to ripple through time and echo into eternity. You are a forever person. And so if that's true, then your life is not meaningless. Today matters so much because you will live for eternity. And so the Christian answer to destiny is a good answer. And it's also beautiful. Your life will not end at the grave. You are a forever person, and the ripples of your life will echo into eternity. So two verses here that I think say it better than I can. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. So C.S. Lewis talks about this a little bit. It would be an odd thing. Um, he talks about cravings. And so he says, like, I desire food. 
turns out there's a such thing. I get hungry. Turns out there's a such thing as, as bread. Then um, he says, I have, I have sexual urges. Well, turns out there's a such thing as sex. I have an urge for eternity, something beyond this world. And he says, the best sense of, of desiring something beyond this world, the best answer to that question may be that I was made for another world. And um, in typical C.S. Lewis fashion, I think that's a more beautiful way to say what I'm trying to say here is there's an, an, an ache in our hearts for something beyond. And that ache may say that there, there is something beyond. Hebrews uh, also points out that people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. If that's your destiny, living like that, that is not true makes no sense to me. So if it's true that we're going to die once and then face judgment, to pretend like that's not true and not live our life any differently, I think is just ridiculous. And so uh, I think that's something kind of good to live on, uh, end on there. So there's a chart there at the, the bottom that kind of summarizes all five questions in a kind of neat little package there to, to look over and think through. I hope that that wasn't, um, I don't know, didn't miss the mark. I think some of those questions are some of the most important questions that, that you can ask. I think when I talk to my kids about what they're going to study, where they're going to go to college, what their vision or plan is for life. I want to want them to think about these questions beforehand because I think, I think once you have a perspective of what is a good and true and beautiful worldview, then everything else flows down from that. And um, so that's what we want to do over the next five weeks. And so over the next four weeks, we'll kind of connect some other worldviews to Christianity and see where the, the tension is and how they complement each other. Thanks. All right, thank you to David for teaching on Christian theism and an introduction to worldviews. Fantastic job, David, really great. David actually was the one who helped formulate uh, this sort of this matrix and these five questions um, from a book called The Universe Next Door by James Sire. Uh, but he was really the one that sort of crystallized this into a, uh, a thing that we could teach in 40 minutes because obviously teaching on a worldview in any amount of time that could last for one night is tough, okay? so. Probably more appropriately, this would be a you know a week or two in a philosophy course or a you know theology course or an epistemology course or something like that. Um, but of course, we're doing it in one night for 40 minutes or so. Uh, we'll be back next week. I'll be teaching on naturalism or the belief that what you see is what you get, effectively, and a very popular worldview, uh, both in the sense that people would say of themselves that. I am a naturalist, or this is what I believe, and also I think in a casual or a cultural sense that maybe we hold to certain naturalistic worldview uh, ideas, and maybe we don't realize that. So maybe in some ways we are Christian, and in some ways we're naturalistic, and I think that will make more sense next week after we teach on it. Uh, thanks for tuning in. If you're in the Memphis area on a Monday night, you're a medical or dental student, come spend the night with us, 630 Typically, we're out by about 8.15 or 8.30. We have some desserts, some coffee. Um, always have a great time together. We'd love to have you join us. It's MDDDS on Facebook, or you can message me, Kyle Fagala. And again, we'd love to have you. Love to meet you. So hopefully you've been enjoying this. Again, next week, naturalism. And uh, other than that, just appreciate you. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.